Hello first years, welcome to your next podcast. Today I'm going to be discussing book 23 entitled The Funeral and the Games. Um, We're going to do this one a little bit differently to start with. I'm actually going to read out from the text the first 108 lines and give a general overview of the funeral before we start analysing it because it is such a small but incredibly important part of the poem that I really wanted to express to you um, through my voice um, how important it is. This is her has got a lot to do with the fact that book 23 is often overlooked. So you've got all the intense fighting of book 22 and the overwhelming pathos of 24. And a lot of people forget that book 23 actually has a lot to say apart just from the funeral games. So we're going to start by me reading out lines 1 to 108. If you'd like to read along while I'm uh, speaking to you, we're on page 395. While the Trojans took up the cry across the town, the Greeks withdrew to their ships by the Hellespont and then dispersed, each man to his own ship. The Myrmidons alone were not dismissed. Achilles kept his war-loving companions with him and addressed them. Myrmidons, with your swift horses, faithful companions, we will not unyoke our horses from their chariots yet, but, mounted as we are, we'll drive them past Patroclus and mourn for him. That is the honour due to the dead. Then, when we have drawn some comfort from our bitter tears, we will unyoke the horses and eat together here. So he spoke, and the Myrmidons all broke into lamentation together. Achilles led them, and three times, in tears, they drove their lovely maned horses round the dead, while Thetis stirred in them all the desire to weep. The sands were wet with tears, their armour was wet with tears, so great a master of the rout had they lost. Now the son of Peleus, laying his man's laying hands on his companion's chest, led them in the loud dirge. Farewell and rejoice, Patroclus, even in the halls of Hades. I am now keeping all the promises I made you. I have dragged Hector's body here for the dogs to eat raw, and at your pyre I am going to cut the throats of a dozen splendid sons of Troy to vent my anger at your death. He spoke, and foully maltreated godlike Hector, flinging him down on his face in the dust by Patroclus's beer. His warriors then took off their gleaming bronze armour, unyoked their proud, snorting horses, and sat down in their multitudes by the ship of swift-footed Achilles, who had provided for them a magnificent funeral feast. Many a white ox fell bellowing to the iron knife. Many a sheep and bleating goat were slaughtered, and many a fine fat hog with gleaming tusks was stretched across the flames to have its bristles singed. Blood in cupfuls was poured all around the body. Meanwhile, Lord Achilles, swift-footed son of Peleus, was taken by the Greek leaders to godlike Agamemnon, though it had been hard to persuade him, still enraged as he was for his companion. When they reached Agamemnon's hut, they told the clear-voiced heralds to stand a great three-legged cauldron over the fire in the hope of inducing Achilles to wash the congealed blood from his body. But he blankly refused and swore a great oath as well. By Zeus, highest and best of the gods, never shall I permit any water to come near me till I have cremated Patroclus, made him a grave man and shorn my hair, since however long I live I shall never suffer again, as I am suffering now. But for the moment, though I hate the thought of food, we have to eat, and at dawn, Agamemnon, lord of men, order wood to be collected and everything to be provided that a dead man ought to have with him when he travels under the western gloom, so that Patroclus can be consumed by the unflagging fire as soon as possible, and the men return to their duties when he is gone. So he spoke, and they heard and complied. They hurriedly prepared the food and ate it, and no one went without a fair share. Their hunger and thirst satisfied, they returned, each to his hut to sleep. But the son of Peleus, groaning heavily, lay down on the shore of the sounding sea among his many myrmidons, in an open space where the waves were surging on the beach. 
His splendid limbs were exhausted from chasing Hector towards windswept Ilium, but no sooner had he fallen into sleep's sweet embrace, resolving all his cares, than he was visited by the ghost of poor Patroclus, looking and talking exactly like the man himself, with the same stature, the same lovely eyes, and the same clothes as those he used to wear. It stood over his head and said, "'You are asleep. You have forgotten me, Achilles. You did not neglect me in life. You do in death.' Bury me as quickly as possible and let me pass the gates of Hades. I am kept out by the spirits, the images of the dead, who refuse to let me cross the river and join them, but leave me to wander forlornly up and down on this side of Hades' hall with its wide gates. And give me your hand, I beg you, for once you have passed me through the flames, I shall never come back again from Hades. Never again in life will you and I sit down together out of earshot of our men to scheme our schemes. For I have been swallowed up by the dreadful doom that must have been my lot from birth, and it is your destiny too, godlike Achilles, to perish under the rich Trojan walls. Something else now. One more request. Do not let them bury my bones apart from yours, Achilles. Let them lie together, just as you and I grew up together in our house, after my feather, Meniotius, brought me there as a child from Opius because of the disastrous homicide committed when I killed Amphidamius's son, by accident, in a childish quarrel over a game of knucklebones. The chariot Peleus welcomed me to his palace, brought me up with the loving care and appointed me to your attendant. So let the one container, the golden two-handled vessel that your lady mother give you, hold our bones. Swift-footed Achilles replied to him and said, Dearest Patroclus, why did you come and make these requests of me? Of course I will see to everything and do exactly as you command. But come nearer to me now, so that we can hold each other in our arms, if only for a moment and draw some comfort from our bitter tears. With these words, he held out his arms, but embraced nothing. Like smoke, the spirit vanished underground, gibbering. Achilles was amazed and sprang to his feet. He beat his hands together, and in his desolation cried, So it is true. Something of us does survive in Hades' halls, some spirit and image of a man, but without real existence, since all night long the spirit of poor Patroclus has been standing at my side, weeping and wailing. It told me what to do, and looked marvellously like him. So he spoke, and stirred in them all the desire to weep, and rosy-fingered dawn found them still in tears around the pitiable dead. Now, before I move on and talk about, very briefly, the actual funeral of Patroclus, there are two things I just want to clarify um, from the 108 lines I've just read. So, uh, Patroclus talks about how he came to be uh, at Peleus's palace and become Achilles' friend. And he talks about how he killed someone and then they had to be welcomed in uh, to the palace of Peleus. In myth, and I do want to stress in myth... A lot of the time, if you killed someone, you had to pay some form of penalty. And it wasn't like prison. They didn't really have the concept of prison. Normally, you were exiled. In this case, um, Patroclus had killed someone. And he and his father then had to flee or were exiled from where they were living. And it was only the kindness of Peleus that allowed them to go and stay with them. And that's how Patroclus ended up being Achilles' friend, servant, playmate, whatever. Uh, Knucklebones, which is the game he was playing, is a bit like an ancient form of dice, um, but it's played literally with the bones of a knuckle from a human hand, um, which sounds really gross to us, but was really normal back then. And we've actually looked at a statue that had uh, shows a depiction of a boy playing Knucklebones um, when we were looking at some of our freestanding statues. So that's the first bit, the 108 lines of book 23. After the little um, ghost scene between Achilles and Patroclus, we then get Patroclus's actual funeral. And I just want to really give a brief overview of what that is. 
So the next day, uh, a Greek force led by Meriones cuts timber for Patroclus' funeral pyre. The men prepare for the funeral, putting on their arms and building Patroclus' pyre. Let's be very clear. They wouldn't have been attacked by the Trojans gathering wood. Um, a lot like in many modern wars, um, I'm thinking particularly World War One and World War Two, there would be a truce of some sort while uh, the dead were buried and collected. This is the same kind of thing happening here. So they go and get some wood to build up uh, Patroclus' funeral pyre. Um, and then a massive sacrifice is made to the gods, including the 12 Trojans Achilles took captive the previous day. It also includes him chucking on a horse, which I find incredible. He literally just lifts up the horse and chucks it onto the fire. Um, we are talking about human and animal sacrifice in a big way. We think it's weird the ancient Greeks wouldn't have battered an eyelid. Um, at first, Patroclus' pyre does not burn, but Achilles prays to the gods of the western north wind. Iris delivers Achilles' prayer and soon the pyre is set ablaze. The next day, Patroclus' bones are collected and placed in an urn and the Greeks build him a burial mound. Um, Achilles then asks to be buried in the same tomb when his time comes. The next part, of course, then is the actual games, which are part of the funeral itself. But we're going to look at that a little bit, but a little bit later on. I want to focus a little bit more on um, what we have seen in this first kind of 100, 200 lines and what that so tells us about Achilles and Patroclus together as well as separately. So what does book 23 show us about Achilles? A couple of things. Firstly, that Achilles' death is foreshadowed. His separation from his mother is also hinted at. Achilles' desire for physical contact is not reciprocated. The futility of Achilles' attempted embrace is highlighted. Achilles' shock at being unable to embrace Patroclus makes him sympathetic, showing how grief-stricken he is. We see the extent of Achilles' love and the duration of his grieving makes Achilles again more sympathetic as it lasts until dawn. This is where people go, clearly, Achilles and Patroclus, something else was going on here. They like to give it homoerotic overtones, and it's not that at all. Again, I want to stress this is a bit like comrades in arms, they're best friends. The idea is that they've grown up together, and the loss of Patroclus is essentially the loss of everything that Achilles will no longer be able to have, as well as the person himself. It's wrapped up in a lot more than just Patroclus. So, let's have a look at Achilles and Patroclus then. So, it goes without saying that Achilles' grief for Patroclus is mahoosive and he provides multiple signs of his devotion and sense of loss. Achilles feels the loss of both a true comrade in arms and an incredibly close companion. The appearance of Patroclus' ghost demonstrates the unique bond between Patroclus and Achilles and the connection is so strong that Patroclus will return from the dead to speak to him. Their joint burial also suggests the strength of their bond Patroclus' request also emphasised the importance of a proper burial, as only allows a soul's passage to the afterlife, which is, funny enough, what is being denied to Hector, and you can really see that being highlighted. While Patroclus is having these lavish funeral games and this beautiful funeral pyre, Hector's body is just sat there, being maltreated, only being protected by the will of and grace of the gods. Um, this is a deliberate move on Hector to really highlight the fact that Hector is being disrespected, which is bad. And also, it gives us an insight as to how Hector's funeral games will be, because we will not see them. With the construction of Patroclus's pyre, the mourning for Patroclus begins to draw to a close. Achilles' sacrifice, including 12 Trojans, is an effort to show the magnitude of his sorrow. Apparently, in the ancient world, human sacrifice equals I'm sad. 
At moments, Achilles seems nearly like a god, as when Iris takes his message for him to the gods of the wind, who immediately comply with his wishes. Yet, Achilles' glory is connected not to immortality, although he is half immortal, but a complete acceptance of his own death, demonstrated again by his request to be buried in the same tomb. Achilles knows he will die not just soon, but during the war. The funeral games mark the end of the period of grieving for Patroclus. These events restore order to the Greek army, which had been held in the suspension of Achilles' sorrow. The games provide a peace-time-like lull after the strife of Patroclus' death. I.e., we've had some really intense emotions, some really intense fighting, and the rest of Book 23 is going to be something like a mind bath. We're going to have a little bit of a lull before we ramp back the tension up with the meeting between Achilles and Priam. So let's have a look and focus on Patroclus then. So it could be suggested that the lavishness of Patroclus's funeral games, and they are particularly lavish, and the Cleos that he has achieved makes up somewhat for the unfairness of his death. He also gets much better treatment post-death than Hector, showing his importance to both the poem and Achilles. The reappearance of Patroclus as a ghost and his quiet, I would say reproachful tone suggests, and this is really important, an equalisation of the relationship at this point. So let me clarify that. In books one and nine, Patroclus is seen as more of a servant than a friend. However, in book 16, we see him treat and be treated by Achilles very differently, almost but not quite like an equal. However, over books 17 to 22, Patroclus being the motivation of Achilles' return to battle, see him become much more important, and by book 23, the roles have reversed, with Patroclus being the superior in the relationship and Achilles being the inferior. The detail of the funeral games may be seen as reinforcing this. What we're really saying is that Patroclus is important because we have a whole book dedicated to his funeral games. Not only that, but he returns as a ghost and that marks him out as special in his own way because not everyone does that. This isn't the Marvel or DC universe. So, beginning in book 22 and extending to book 23, Achilles again moves from understandable anger, this time over the death of Patroclus, to uncontrollable and all-consuming rage in his treatment of the body of Hector. Anger is Achilles' base emotion. But what's really interesting here is that his anger is kind of mutating and repeating itself in slightly different ways. So structurally, if we look at this, the last three books follow the same structural pattern in Achilles' rage that the first 20 books did. Achilles' anger at Agamemnon is replaced with anger at Hector. Likewise, just as Achilles reached a reconciliation with Agamemnon, so will he reconcile with Hector's father Priam. Now, Achilles actually began the desecration of Hector's corpse at the end of book 22. If you're not happy with the word desecration, it means defilement. He's stabbing it, he's spitting on it, he's dragging it around. And he continues it both explicitly and implicitly in book 23. Achilles' rage cannot be stopped and the reader can no longer feel sympathy for him. Now, this is really interesting. On one hand, we feel massive amounts of sympathy for him. His best friend is dead. And it's kind of like his fault. But on the other hand, he is completely disrespecting the heroic code by how he treats Hector, really highlighted by the fact that Patroclus is being treated so well and Hector, who arguably is of a higher status or of a higher importance, is being treated terribly. Homer created in Hector a really sympathetic and understandable character, especially 
taking into consideration how we saw him in book six with his wife Andromache and his son Astyanax. Now Hector undoubtedly gloried over the death of Patroclus. It's what heroes do. You kill someone, you crow about it. But he didn't mutilate Patroclus's body. He stripped it of his armour, which he was entitled to do, but in no way did he mutilate the body. So now Achilles' actions have gone beyond the bounds of acceptability. It's okay to take a body and ransom it back to the parents. That's That happens quite a lot. But to take a body and then just mutilate it as often and as terribly as Achilles is doing to Hector's body is 100% unacceptable. There is no justification for his actions within the heroic code at all. So just as Achilles' anger towards Agamemnon turned into petulance, his anger at those who killed Patroclus turns into essentially irrational fury. Achilles' anger in book 23 is then tempered, kind of brought down a notch or two and interrupted by the dream appearance of Patroclus and the funeral games themselves. And we need both of these events to really help us, the reader, see a more humane aspect of Achilles. So, Patroclus's request for burial follows the ancient Greek belief that the soul cannot rest without burial. The vision of the ghost also helps prepare the way for Achilles' reconciliation with Prime in the last book. And this is sometimes called the Patroclus effect, i.e. would Achilles been able to have given Hector back to Priam if he didn't understand loss because he'd lost Patroclus. Patroclus represents the more human and humane sides of Achilles' personality and the appearance of the ghost has a decided softening effect on Achilles' wrath. Similarly, the funeral ceremony and games show Achilles in a more favourable light. The funeral rites involve a procession of chariots, the cutting of hair as a sign of mourning and various sacrifices including, again we're going to say it, animals and humans. Book 23 and Achilles' behaviour and Patroclus' return as a shade brings up some interesting ideas philosophically about the afterlife and psychologically about the effect of grief. I'm not a psychologist, I'm not going to talk about the psychology of grief, but I can talk about the philosophy of the afterlife. Um, Homer was the first one to kind of say, guys, there's an afterlife in Hades, there are ghosts there, um, and he's alluding to the fact that Patroclus has uh, been left unable to really enter anything that's heaven, hell, purgatory, any modern concept we might have of the afterlife. Um, unless you're buried properly, you are stuck in limbo on the River Styx. Um, some myths say writhing in agony forever. Some say just really bored. Some say there's a time limit of a thousand years. It's all a bit up in the air. But essentially you can't cross over unless you've been buried properly. So that's Achilles and Patroclus and all that stuff about the ghost. It's important. Okay, I want to want you to underline that, highlight it, you know, do a little bubble wrap around it. It's very important. But it's not the only thing that's going on in book 23. Of course, we need to talk a little bit about the games. So we're going to talk about Achilles in reference to the games before we then talk about uh, the games themselves. So Achilles not only heads off and settles disputes among the contestants, he also keeps the unruly fans under control. So while the men are watching the foot race and straining to see who's head, uh, Idominus and Lesser Ajax, ugh, hate Lesser, hate Lesser Ajax, they get into a verbal altercation, i.e. they have a bit of a spat. Achilles stops the quarrel by reminding them that they would be angry if someone else acted that way. This is evidently an indirect acknowledgement of the Greeks' disapproval of his earlier angle and its devastating cons consequences. 
Some people say this is Achilles having a bit of a dig at himself. Some say he's actually um, trying his attempt at humour. Some say he has no idea the irony of his statement. It's a interesting idea. Uh, similarly, at the end of book 22, his gracious gift to Agamemnon at the end of the book would seem finally to show the respect that lays to rest the quarrel between the two men. Agamemnon stepped forward to compete in the spear-throwing contest, but Achilles immediately stopped the competition and just straight up offered him the prize. So, what does book 23 show us? To a degree, Achilles has learnt or is learning from his mistakes. He is acting as a mediator, he's resolving conflicts, he's compensating men for the injustices caused by the gods' interference and offering everyone the honour due to them. I love the fact that Nestor just gets given a bowl for being Nestor, like... Well done, you've made it to old age. Have a bowl. Of course, it is easier to achieve this kind of uh, ideal human behaviour in the artificial world of the games. They're intense, but they're not life and death. And when necessary, as provided, more prizes can be produced. And what's interesting is that the games could be seen as an idealised version of how things might be or ought to be. But it is also clear that Achilles' quarrel with Agamemnon and his anger over the distribution of prizes has already become if not extinct, certainly less important. For some time, his anger has been directed against Hector and that rage was not quieted by the games. He continues to grieve for Patroclus and every morning he ties Hector's corpse to his chariot and drags him round and round the tomb of Patroclus before day dumping him face down in the dirt. So yes, he is learning, he is growing, but he's not learnt everything he needs to yet. Uh, very quickly, just to talk about the games themselves... After the funeral, Achilles brings out prizes, and they are some pretty boss prizes if you're uh, a Greek hero. They are the armour of Sarpedon, worn by Patroclus. Uh, we've got Achilles' armour, worn on the battlefield, and he calls upon the men to participate in honour of Patroclus. So not only do you have the possibility of winning a really cool prize, but you're also showing that you're a really great hero by honouring a fellow comrade. Uh, the contests themselves are very light relief after the intensity of Achilles' rampage, his slaying of Hector and his grief over Patroclus. And we see this in films a lot. Like, I love films that have got some great fight scenes in them. But if you have, like, an hour and a half, an hour and 45 minutes of just pure fight scene, you will just get desensitised to it and get, like, battle fatigue. The same is true for literature as well. You need space to breathe between the intense emotions of book 22 and the death of Hector and then the intense emotions that we're going to see in book 24 with Priam. What I do love about the funeral games is that they are funny. Okay, So you've got the boxer Epiochus threatening to smash the skin and break the bones of any opponent, having like a proper Hulk moment. Um, my other one is the description of Lesser Ajax in the foot race. It's so funny. Um, he's slipping in cow dung and literally spitting shit from his mouth. Hilarious. We also um, still have gods on the scene. They've preserved the body of Hector, but they also get involved meddling in the games. A bit more light-hearted than we've seen before. Um, they are getting involved because they have their favourites. But it's different. The games are closely related to what you would need to be able to do if you were going to be in war. Drive a chariot, throw a spear, box. Many of the prizes are from the deadly competition on the battlefield. Armour, horses, women. And the struggle for honour and prizes is keen as a drive for glory and battle. Thus they offer an opportunity to reflect on the events that have taken place in the poem. I.e. 
Greeks are the ultimate competitors and they want to win at all times, whether that be at war or just at games. Book 23 also provides a last review of the heroes of the Greek army. These characters who have played the major roles throughout the poem appear here for the final time. The games allow the reader to see them in a more civilised competition and provide a farewell to the Greek warriors. So if you were to talk about the kind of curtain call of book 23, you could talk about how we see uh, Odysseus, Menelaus, Diomedes, Agamemnon and Nestor. Some people like to mention Lesser Ajax and Antilochos as well. Please note, only Achilles appears in book 24 um, from the Greek side. He is the only Greek there. So I've got some quotes here, um, some expert views on book 23. They're really hard to come by. Um, but the Massa Lectures gave us some wonderful ones from Professor Richard Jenkins, uh, University of Oxford. And here are the five quotes I picked out for you uh, that you might be able to use if need be in a 30 mark essay. So he says, Antilochus suddenly springs into great prominence in the funeral games. He is a very attractive character and that suits the only part of the poem that's social comedy. We see Achilles being drawn back into his society. When Antilochus sticks up for his rights, Achilles smiles, his first smile in the entire poem. The games tend to get neglected between the two tragic books, book 22 and 24, but it is important that this lighter scene of social comedy comes between them. These, I think, are some really good quotes. Um, and I really learnt something myself with the whole Achilles smiles his first smile in the entire poem, because I went back and thought about it, and yeah, he only smiles once in book 23. So, two... Uh, wrap up our look at book 23 what can we talk about so book 23 the return to balance of achilles his final and probably more truthful reconciliation with agamemnon his appearance in a formal public setting before the challenge of facing prime in book 24 the laying to rest of patroclus a reminder of divine importance in human affairs particularly with apollo and athene and the final appearances by other important characters almost like a curtain call I hope this podcast has demonstrated to you how important book 23 can be and how we should look at it and not write it off. Thank you very much for listening.